Hey, the, the first thing I just, I want to just say thank you for your generosity yeah. as a campus. You all are doing an amazing job this year. You can clap. Come on. The, re the reports came out just for kind of where we are mid-year, and you know, we're really believing God that we're going to outpace our budget by the time we get to the end of the year by somewhere around $25,000. That's what we were praying for, and we're on pace to do that. And that's not possible uh, without those of you who are uh, uh, just walking in the spirit of generosity. And, and what I would tag on to that is that we, we consistently track, I don't see it, but we have elders and trustees that track these things for us. We consistently track, though, uh, as a church at both campuses, only about 25% of our church family that walks in the biblical principle of tithing. And so I'm just sharing that with you, that if, if you're not walking in that or have questions about that, just imagine what we could do if we got that 25% to 50%. The campuses that we could launch, the missions work that we could do, what's going on with Praxis 9, what we would be able to do there with scholarships. And so I'm just encouraging you, if you call this your church home, that you're going to hear from God and He's going to talk to you about how to get involved financially. The other thing is with our 2020 vision, if you call this your church home and you've not filled out one of those 2020 vision cards, there's a table that's set up out there in the lobby. Uh, we're trying to raise about $150,000 to get our camp, Southside campus launch. Uh, it's also going to go towards uh, uh, the, just promoting this campus and the Williamsburg campus to meet some staff needs that we have. And so we've got about 80,000 pledged. About over 50 has been given already. Come on. Uh, just this year within the first six months. It's amazing. But, but we need to see the, the, the people that haven't turned in that card yet to get those cards turned in because we need to see that 80, uh, another 70 get added to that. And so we know God's going to speak to you uh, about that as well. So just thank you again for your faithfulness uh, and, your, and your generosity. So, hey, for Praxis 9, just want to talk about that for a minute. Uh, we, we, we are uh, well into that journey. We had five, we have five interviews today with applicants. Come on. So good. Four of them have already had their interviews and, and, then, and then, not to point any fingers, has her interview after the service. After, after the service, so, so we're excited. So, but this, this is the announcement that, that we want to make. We want to see five more applicants. We want to see that number from five applicants to go to 10 applicants. So this is what we're going to do. We, we met this week, our strategic planning team for, for Praxis 9, and we're going to take the age and move it from 30 to 35 from 30 to 35. So if you're here when we announced it the first time and you said, I was going to turn in an application, God heard you and the applications are available for you in the lobby. You with me? So if you've been praying about that and you thought the window missed, then God, he heard, he's changing it. And then we want to see five more applications that are going to come in uh, over, the next, the, over this next month. And we want to see that go from five to 10. So we're just believing God for that together. So, and then this is my last thing is that Josh is getting ready to be deployed. Where's Josh? He's right there. So I'm going to have him stand. And uh, if you know Josh, or even if you don't, uh, we just want to gather around him in this moment. And uh, really we should be praying for Megan because they're planning a wedding while he's gone. So she's the one that we should be praying for, right? So we're going to have them stand together and uh, just believe in God for great favor over their life. Father, we know that it's always hard to be apart, but we know it's especially hard to be apart when you're about ready to be together, Father, as a husband and a wife.
So we just pray for grace over their lives. We pray for just mercy and all the planning that's going to happen through Skype and, and FaceTime conversations, God. We pray for traveling mercies for him. We pray for divine protection for him and his unit as they are deployed, Father, in defense of this great nation and the freedoms that we so celebrate, Father, at the sacrifice of people just like Joss that are willing to go on our behalf, God. We pray that this young couple, that they are going to walk under an open heaven, God, and we know that there is a great destiny and there is a great calling that you have placed upon their life for kingdom building, and we pray that Psalm 119 uh, would be the, the, the reality of their day, that your word would be a lamp unto their feet, as you say, God, and a light unto their path. In Jesus' name, come on, and everybody said together, amen. Amen. Does anybody know if it's supposed to rain tonight? I think the series that God spoke to us to do this summer about the Holy Spirit could, could, could be all about tonight, could be about tonight. I, I thought maybe that we were going to put this series on hold to talk about some things that are happening in our nation, and then the more I began to pray and the more I began to study and the more I began to plan for tonight, I, I realized that, that this, this series is all about what's happening in our nation. So we're, we're going we're gonna to have a tough conversation together tonight, and if you're visiting with us, you picked a great night to come because this is who we are as a church, that we're not going to hide from the tough things. We're not going to hide from the tough things, that we believe that God's Word is relevant to our world and for our day and to our time, and we're going to open up this book to see what He has to say to us. I was thinking just earlier this week about uh, a, uh, a time in, just in my past when I was on staff and, and the church that I was attending, the Mechanicsville Christian Center, made an announcement in 1999 that they were going to hire a pastor of business administration, and I've been walking with Christ for many years and had spent 10 years in a corporate setting, and my my, uh, my, my academic major was business economics, but my life major was debauchery when I was in college. And so, but I knew God was going to redeem those years. And I had a sense of calling of ministry on my life when I made a vow of devotion to Christ. I just didn't know how that was going to play out. And so 10 years later, when our church announced they were going to hire a pastor of business administration, Vanessa and I looked at each other and I said, I think I'm supposed to do that. And she said, I think you are too. And so I went on staff to really bring some structure to their church with, with staffing and their human resources and budgeting. And, and, and that's right around the time that texting started. Now, I know young people are going, what do you mean texting started, right? Hasn't there always been texting, right? They can't imagine a world without, without texting. There were no smartphones, touch screens, right? There were flip phones. I remember when the Razor came out. Do you remember that? The really thin? Come on. Who has that phone right now? We're going to take up a collection for you tonight, right? So, right, and so texting then was, right, well, you had to use just a normal phone keypad. So you might have to push one button like five times to get one letter to appear. But, but teenagers, man, I kid you not, their fingers would move so fast you couldn't even see them anymore. Just flying through that keyboard. And we had a, a budget meeting and our youth pastor came in and, and, and to the meeting to, to talk about the budget they needed. And he said, we, we, for our student ministries team, it was a large church, to our student ministries team, we need an increase to our, our, our cell phone budget because of a, for, for texting plans. I kid, this is what I, I kid you not, this is what I said. We're not doing any increases because this texting thing is a fad. 
That's, that's what, I kid you not. I kid you not. It's just a fad. It's just a fad. It's going to pass, Dave. I'm still good friends with Dave. We laugh about it even now. It's going to pass, Dave, because people, we're going to get back to a place where people realize if you need to talk, you just call, right? You just call people, right? I was really wrong, right? Now, that's the only time I've ever been wrong, but I thought I would share this, right? There are times, there's times in our lives where we're convinced, we're convinced that it's just a fad. It's just, it's just going to pass, in fact, that's exactly how people treated Jesus. They were angry at Jesus because he was changing stuff. He was messing with sacred stuff. Stuff that he was saying, we're not doing that anymore. And then we're going to start doing this. His preaching was turning the Jewish community upside down. They began to conspire to kill him because of the change that he was speaking of. And the Bible records conversations for us where people said, hey, let's just all calm down. This Jesus guy, it's just a fad. It's going to pass. Let's not worry about it. And then they begin to name other people. Remember this guy and that guy. And when we read that in the Bible, we don't even know who they are because they were fads. And that's exactly who they thought Jesus was going to be. And I think Jesus was thinking in his heart when he knew what was in their heart that he was saying, oh, if you think I'm going to change stuff, you wait until this thing called the church, which you don't even know what that word is yet, that I'm about ready to give birth to in this world. You just wait and see the kind of change that they're going to enact through the world once they get warmed up. Because right now I can be only in one place at one time. But after I walk out of the grave, like that song we sang and when Kim Walls got up there, she was doing some preaching on the, come on. Kim Walls. And so, right, Jesus is saying, hey, you just wait because when I come up out of that grave, I'm going to release into the world something called the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to be able to be everywhere all the time for everybody who makes a vow of devotion to me. And that's where we are today. Our call as devoted followers of Christ is to carry on the tradition of being a voice of change when a voice of change is called for. There are moments in time where people are born, and we're in one of them right now, where the church is supposed to say, this is the way, walk in it. It's God's word, it's his truth, stand firm. It's not always popular, it's not always embraced, but guess what? It wasn't for Jesus either, and he told us it was gonna be that way. In fact, in the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are those who persecuted for righteousness' sake. I don't know about you, but I want to be a person that I get to the end of my days and that I was silent when I was supposed to be silent, but I was loud when I was supposed to be loud. And I believe that we are in a place and a time in history where our church needs to have a big mouth. Come on. Matthew 15. Now, my Bible heading is, the, it says the faith of, the, of a Gentile woman. And so I like to joke sometimes, the, the Bible is divinely inspired. The headings are not always, right? And so sometimes the headings, they're good because they help us find stuff in the Bible. Sometimes the headings are good because they help us look for something in the Bible. Sometimes the headings work against us because they narrow our view. You with me? It causes us to say, well, this must be all that it's about. There's no text in the Bible that's only ever about one thing. It's rich, it's deep, it's the only book that's alive and living. Verse 21. I was like, why can't I see this? 
Uh, turn my glasses on. Then Genesis, it wasn't that funny, Chad. Come on. Make fun of my age up here. Then, then, then Jesus left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, sometimes detail is given to us just so we can track things geographically, but sometimes the detail is given to us because there's something of that detail that's going to be instructive, and that's the way it is here. And this story is also found, I believe, in Matthew 7. And so sometimes when you're studying in the Gospels, you need to read it in all the accounts, and you put them all together, and all the details give us the full picture. We're going to work out of Matthew. I think it's Mark. I'm pretty sure it's Mark. Yeah, Mark 7, you can find it there too if you're a note taker. Then Jesus left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And a Gentile woman who lived there came to him pleading, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, for my daughter is possessed by a demon that torments her severely. So we know that this is a serious situation. It's urgent. It's not something minor. It's not something minuscule. It's not something where it's not an inconvenience that this child's life is at stake. It's hanging in the balance. But Jesus gave her no reply, not even a word. Then his disciples urged him to send her away. Tell her to go away, they said. She's bothering us with all her begging. And Jesus said to the woman, I was sent only to help God's lost sheep, the people of Israel. But she came and she worshiped him, pleading again, Lord, help me. Jesus responded, if you think his ignoring her catches you off guard, wait till you hear what he says next. It isn't right to take food from the children, referring to Jewish people, and throw it to the dogs. I think the disciples said, oh, did you hear what he just said? She replied, that's true, Lord. But even dogs are allowed to eat scraps that fall beneath their master's table. D Dear woman, Jesus said to her, your faith is great and your request is granted. And her daughter was instantly healed. I love these texts in scripture. We're doing Matthew 15, this story. We're gonna hit some tonight in Matthew 16 because Jesus at the end of Matthew 16 is where he launches and brings his great revelation of why he came, which was to build his church. Matthew 16 is where Peter gives his great confession. He says, upon this rock I will build my church. And in the Greek it's ecclesia, which means the called out ones. And Jesus announces there that he's going to birth something, that there's gonna be a movement that's gonna come out of Judaism that we know today to be called Christianity, and that term didn't even come until later in the first century, referencing a church in Antioch where they were called Christians. They were the, the, the people who followed Christ. But right here in this moment, if we were to travel back in time, Jesus is, he calls it the ecclesia, the people who are called out to be called together. And it's, and it's just before the chronology of the Bible is instructive of all the things that Jesus could have taught on before he cast his vision for the birthing of the church. He picks race and politics. And it's not a coincidence because they had a problem with it then and we've got a problem with it today. And Jesus is saying to them and he's saying to us, you have got to get this right. And with the power of the Holy Spirit, the church is supposed to not be a part of the problem, but we're supposed to be the answer for the solution the world is desperate to find. Let me read you this quote. This book right here, Oneness Embrace by Tony Evans. I love Tony Evans is awesome. 
If, you, if you're looking for a book that speaks to some of the challenges that we're, we're dealing with today, you should get this book. Our racial divide is a disease. Over-the-counter human remedies won't fix it. They merely mask the symptoms for a season. What we need is a prescription from the creator to destroy this cancer before it destroys us. It is my contention that if the church can ever get this issue of oneness right, then we can help America finally become one nation under God that we declare ourselves to be. When we get it right in the church house, listen to this, when we get it right in the church house is when we can spread it to the White House and beyond. Come on, if that didn't make you want to read this book, I'm not going to finish that sentence because I believe in grace and mercy most of the time. Listen to this. Until we can embrace how we were born and raised, we will never be able to manifest the values of God in history so that people can understand and fully see that God is a God of multicoloredness. Let me read that part again. So that people can understand and fully see that God is a God of multicoloredness. I was praying in the office before I came here and, and, I, and it was raining and, and, and so I just had this picture in my mind of Noah stepping out of the ark and there was the very first rainbow, right? Isn't it awesome when you're reading the Bible and things happen for the first time? They had, they had never seen one of those things appear in the sky before and there it was. And I think there's a lot in there for us but I think one of them is this. I think God was saying to Noah and his family, you all look alike right now but there's going to come a day where the world is going to look just like this rainbow because I am a God of multicoloredness, because he loves diversity. He celebrates diversity. Diversity was part of his plan. And the church has got to be the voice in the world today that champion, champions, come on, healing and reconciliation amongst the races. So let's talk about this story a little bit. Matthew 15. It's, it's, it's important that we understand that this woman is from the region of Tyre and Sidon. And in fact, in Mark chapter 7, we're given the detail that she was actually Syrophoenician. She's Syrophoenician, which was a, 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 an offshoot of the, of the Canaanite tribe. The Canaanites were a, a people that, in, that, that were living in the promised land that the, the Jewish people were supposed to drive out. Now, this group of Canaanites, the Syrophoenicians, I believe that the Holy Spirit gave Mark that detail because it gives us some insight into why the Jewish people hated the Syrophoenicians so bad. Because Jezebel was from Syrophoenicia, right? The, 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 the most wicked queen in all of the biblical history is Jezebel. Jezebel and the king and right, that's the Mount Carmel and Elijah and, and they were just like you have never, like you don't even have to know the Bible when someone says, refers to somebody as Jezebel, you go, uh-oh, right? We understand, it's even just a part of our, 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 our just our, our common language, we understand that Jezebel, she's bad, she's, she's evil. This woman was from Syrophoenicia, and so there was a prejudice against these peoples because, because they understood that the history of these people were always against the Israelites, and the Israelites were always against them. So when she comes up and begins to beg for help, there's lots of reasons why Jesus puts her off. Now, there's a sermon that we could go down on prayer, but we're not going to go down that road today. 
right? One of the reasons why Jesus put her off because he was trying to teach her about faith. Sometimes when you're, you're coming to God with something and it, you, it's, it's, it's obviously apparent that it's an urgent need and it seems like God is ignoring you, sometimes he's putting you off because he's, he's building faith in your heart. But he's not just dealing with this woman, he's dealing with his disciples. Because he knows that it's not too long, he's going to be gone, and it's going to be up to them to carry this thing forward. So when you're reading about when Jesus is dealing with people, he's not always just dealing with people that he's talking to, he's dealing with the disciples because he's training them up. And so when he treats this woman in the expectation of the bigotry and the racism of the day, it's not because Jesus is affirming that racism, it's because he's trying to see what the disciples are gonna do. So when he puts her off and doesn't say anything to her, I think, because the disciples have been walking with Jesus for some time now, this isn't the beginning of his ministry, I, I think he's praying for those disciples. Come on. Father, let just one of them come and challenge me. Help this woman, Jesus. Her daughter, her life's at risk. I think Jesus is praying for one of them. Could, Father, help, help one of them rise above the prejudice of our day and press me to help this woman. But none of them do. In fact, what they do is they move in the racism that they were raised in. In fact, they begin to say to Jesus, can, can you do something about this woman? Come on, this Syrophoenician woman, can, she's bothering us. So Jesus takes it a step farther. Then he says to this woman, he says to this woman, I've not come from the dog, for the dogs of your people. I've come for the treasures of my own people. And even in that moment, I think Jesus is saying, in his heart, will not one of these disciples, are they not disgusted by this response? Is there not anything inside of them that feels how wrong this is? And is this woman not one of the greatest examples of character in all of scripture, right? If someone were to say that to you and about your child, what do you think you would do? Oh, I know what I would do, and it wouldn't be what she did. Right? God help us all. He ignores her, then he insults her, and then he diminishes the need of a daughter that is on the risk of death. This heading should say, not faith of a Gentile woman, it should say, don't try this at home. Right? And at every turn, this woman responded with grace and deference, and turning the other cheek. There, at every turn, character was in her. And what was powerful, what was powerful is that Jesus is juxtaposing for us the people who were supposed to be the treasures of the earth, who were the Jewish people, they're the racists. And this woman who's viewed, right, her culture, her people, they're viewed in society as dogs. She's the example of character. I love in David Platt's book and in the book Radical that we read several years ago, I, I wrote one of these quotes down. It says, the genius of wrong, building the right church depends on using all the wrong people. We want to be that church. We want to build this church with all the wrong people. With the people the world would say it's never going to work with them. 
It's not going to work with that person. It's not going to work with this person. Come on, those are the people that I want to walk with in this life and in this ministry. When, the, when society writes them off, come on, God's just about ready to do something great in their hearts. She came and worshiped him, pleading again, Lord, help me. Jesus responded, it isn't right to take food from children and throw it to dogs. She replied, that's true, Lord, but even dogs are allowed to eat the scraps that fall beneath the master's table. Dear woman, Jesus said to her, your faith is great and your request is granted. And her daughter was instantly healed. Now, the story and the healing of this woman's daughter, that alone is powerful just in itself. But it's not just about that. I don't believe. I believe there is a metaphor for us in this miracle. I believe that Jesus was trying to say to the disciples, if you want to move in the power of the Holy Spirit and the way that he's going to come, when you get to Acts 1.8, Jesus says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And in this series, we're going to talk about Acts 1. We're going to talk about Acts 2 and what happened there. What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Why were they speaking in a spiritual language? We're covering that this summer in this series. But part of the reason why the church then needed the Holy Spirit is why we need it today is that we need supernatural power to overcome the racism that some of us were raised in from day one. Jesus is saying to these disciples, if you want to be able to move with power in this way, in the supernatural, then you've got to get the obstacle, the things that's damming up the flow of the supernatural in your heart are things like bigotry that's filled your life. And Jesus is saying it's not in my life, and that's why I'm able to do the things that I'm doing. I think Jesus is also saying that this woman is desperate for her daughter, and every church at every time in history is going to live in a time and a season where the world is desperate for something. And for all, far too often, they come to the church and they find the disciples instead of finding Jesus. They find the attitude of the disciples. They find the attitude of humanity. They find the attitude of people that think they're doing the right thing because they're just doing the only thing that they know. And Jesus puts this story, the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew and Mark to make it part of the story of the Gospels because he's trying to say to us, will there ever be a time, cannot there ever be a church that when people come and there's an urgent need, even if they're the wrong people that once they get there, they're going to find me, will they let the Holy Spirit change them and transform them so they can see the person like I see them and be ready to move in the kind of power that they need for change to come. There's a test that I took years ago. If you're a note taker, write this down. Implicit, which is I-M-P-L-I-C-I-T. I-M-P-L-I-C-I-T dot Harvard dot E-D-U. Implicit dot Harvard dot E-D-U. Implicit dot Harvard dot E-D-U. I've taken this test many, many times, and as hard as I try, I can't get the outcome to change for me because of the life that I've lived in the, in the, in the place where I grew up. My, my children are the 10th generation of Michaud's in Virginia. I was here way before you. Abraham Michaud came here in the late 1600s. 
lived in this state, in Virginia, just on the other side of, of, of Richmond. Racism and bigotry has been in my family from the very beginning. From the very beginning. When I did all my genealogical research, I began to see that there were times when under listed under property, there were slaves. It's, it's things get passed down from generation to generation, whether you want to believe that it does or not. And if you want to know if you've got some preconceived idea about races, you should take this test. And if you don't want to take the time to take this test, then you're a part of the problem. Implicit.harvard.edu. It, it's just a little keyboard test. It times your response to questions. And, 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 and it does some things to just make you comfortable with the test. It, sends a, it, it, it establishes a benchmark of your response time. But then it's, it, it begins to force you to associate bad words, not, 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 not profanity, but just bad concepts, with, with whites and then bad concepts with black and good with white and good with black. And it times your response. It, it's, it is fascinating. And you might say to yourself, I don't have any problems. I have taken this test again and again and again and again. And every time I take it, I always test with a preference towards white American. Every time. Every time. No matter how hard I try, no matter how hard I want to do it. Now, you might not test that way. You might test worse than me. I don't know how you're going to test, but you should take it. Take it multiple times. Take it this year, next year, the year after that. There's practical things that we can do to say, God, show me my heart. And I'm so glad I took that test years ago and have taken it multiple times since then because I want to be sensitized to the bigotry and the filter that's been given to me from my ancestors because guess what, people? I'm not giving it to my kids. I'm going to want to give it to them. It got given to me, but I'm not giving it to them. And for some of you, that's part of the contribution you're supposed to make to this world is to say it stops here with my generation, with the way I raise my children. If we want to see change, we've got to be changed. If we want to see change, we've got to be changed. I'm not going to go there for the sake of time, but if you're a note taker, I'm just going to give it to you. Galatians 2, 11 through 14. Galatians 2, 11 through 14. Racism has always been a part of the world, and it was part of the church at the very beginning. And you should see it right there, even from Peter. Even from Peter. And Paul had to call him out. Love that story. So let me give you some practical steps. And if you're not already irritated enough with me, I'm moving on to politics. I wasn't originally planning on doing an exhortation about money this week, but I said I'm talking about race and politics. Might as well talk about money too and just upset everybody. Right? Let's just let's give everybody an equal opportunity to be offended. All right. All right. So let me just give you some practical steps. And if we if we get a little long tonight, that's okay, because I'm getting ready to leave for vacation. I'm not preaching for a couple of weeks. I have a lot to say. And then after the two weeks, I'm just telling you, it's gonna be really long after that. All right. Hey, before I go any further, let me just mention we've had some great prophetic moments in our service. Not have we not? Chip Galito, if you know Chip, he had that great word. You know, he's Filipino. And he had that great word about the being finished work on the cross. And Stephanie Hokanen about there's a name for that. And the story about App, she's black. And, and she talks about this, right? Why do people tell stories that way? Why? Why do we do that? Why do we do that? 
as a white person, because I am, I can speak for them. You know what we never say? I was at a stoplight the other day, and the person in front of me, they were white. You ever heard anybody say that? I don't hear them say that. I've been white for 48 years. Never heard a white person say that. But I do hear him say, I was at line at Walmart. The girl was checking me out. She was Mexican. And why do we do that? Because there's something inside of us that we've learned that's been modeled for us. If you want to see change, be changed. When our kids are around their grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins and people that maybe we don't have control over, there's debriefing that sometimes should be done in the car on the way home. You know how grandpa always points out the color of people when he tells a story? We don't do that in our family. We love grandpa, but we need to pray for grandpa that God's going to get a hold of his heart. And who knows the next time grandpa does that, maybe your seven-year-old says to grandpa, why does it matter that they're black, grandpa? Because sometimes grandpa needs to hear from children. If we're going to see change, we've got to be willing to be changed. Stop using color when you're telling your story. It's not important. Some of you, when you look around at your friends, you look like Noah coming off the ark. Everybody looks the same. And you need friends from different, you need, you need friends from different ethnicities. You need friends. And if you don't have any, you need to go find some. Go find some. I'm not kidding you. If there's somebody that sits next to you and they're of a different ethnicity, it doesn't have to be a, they're from another part of the world. They could be American, but a, of a different ethnicity. I'm telling you, you should go up to them this week at work and say, could I, could I take you out to lunch? Because my pastor talked about something I know that I have a, a problem with. And I just, I want to pick your brain about what's going on in our world today. They will quit their job to go out to lunch with you. I'm telling you right now. It, it, you, we have got to have people with different perspectives of other ethnicities that are in our lives. Or every view that we have and every opinion that we carry about what's going on in this world is going to look like the ark instead of looking like a rainbow. That's got to change. You should boycott racially motivated humor. When somebody walks up to you and says, let me tell you this joke. There was a Jewish guy, a black guy, and a white guy. You should say, I don't want to hear that joke. Because it's not going to be funny. Because making fun of races isn't funny. When I was growing up, we had Pollock jokes. Do they do Pollock jokes anymore? Why on earth did my parents let me do that? Right? Are you kidding me? What's funny about making fun of Polish people? Why? Some of you are laughing right now because you're thinking of your favorite one. You think it's innocent? It's part of the problem. It desensitizes our children and this world to the issue of race. You think they're not connected? You couldn't be more wrong. The devil loves the deception of the innocence of humor. It's part of the problem. Don't be a part of it anymore. Speak out whenever possible and whenever appropriate. When you're with your friends at work, when you're with family and somebody's sharing something that's, that's just, just blatantly racist, I'm not saying that you become the race police, but, but there's a way that, that you've got to begin to step in under the power of the Holy Spirit to respond to that and say, that, that statement you make, that makes me uncomfortable. It might be that you've got to pull your grandparents aside, your parents, your kids' grandparents, and say, hey, some of the, can we just talk for a minute? There's times where you say things that makes me uncomfortable around our children, and that, that's got to change. 
where appropriate, and as the Holy Spirit leads you, speak out. Don't be silent. Teach your children that diversity is precious. Allow Scripture to be my authority and not my life experience. At some point, you've got to say, it doesn't matter how I was raised, what does this book have to say? And I want to let this book direct me, not my life experience. All right. Let's move on to politics. If you want a great book about politics and the church and how they're all mixed up and together in ways they shouldn't, Cal Thomas, Blinded by Might, read this book probably 10 years ago. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Cal Thomas, Blinded by Might, talks about how the church, the Christian church, uses the message of religion to advance its political power in appropriate ways. Listen to what Cal Thomas writes. Whenever the church cozies up to political power, it loses sight of its important mission to change the world from the inside out. In blurring the lines between politics and Christianity, the religious right has traded the only power that can truly change America, the gospel's power to transform hearts. I'm not talking about not being active. I'm not talking about not speaking up for issues that are important to you. I'm not talking about having a political party that you're passionate about. Hey, that's part of our government. That's part of citizenship. Just remember, it doesn't make it Christianity. It doesn't make it Christianity. It was a problem in Jesus' day. Guess what? And it's a problem today. Matthew 16. I'm telling you, it's not a coincidence that Jesus hit these things right in the nose, punched them right in the mouth, right before he cast his vision for the church. Because he knew that every church throughout history was going to struggle with these things. All right, Matthew 16. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. One day the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to test Jesus. Not a good idea demanding that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority. He replied, you know the saying, red sky at night means fair weather tomorrow, and red sky in the morning means foul weather all day. The sky must have been really red this morning when we woke up. You know how to interpret the weather signs in the sky, but you don't know how to interpret the signs of the times. Only an evil, adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign, but only the sign I will give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah, right? He's in the fish for three days. It's a sign of the coming of his resurrection. Later, after they crossed to the other side of the lake, the disciples discovered they had forgotten to bring the bread. They're always forgetting stuff, are they not? Did you bring the bread? I didn't bring the bread. Oh, forgot the bread again. Watch out, Jesus warned them. I think they jumped right there because they're talking about who forgot the bread, right? Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. At this, they began to argue with each other because they hadn't brought any bread. So he thinks Jesus is saying, see, he knows we didn't bring the bread and he's angry at us. So now he's talking about yeast. There's some funny stuff in this book, I'm telling you. Jesus knew what they were saying. So he said, you have so little faith. So little faith. Why are you arguing with each other about having no bread? Don't you understand even yet? Don't you remember the 5,000 I fed with five loaves and, and, and the baskets of leftovers you picked up? Or the 4,000 I fed with seven loaves? He was loud because there's explanation points in my Bible. Right? Leftover picked up. Why can't you understand? You've never said that to your children, have you? Why can't you understand? I'm not talking about bread. 
So I'm going to tell you again. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then at last they understood that he wasn't speaking about the yeast and the bread, but about the deceptive teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were the Republicans and the Democrats. Yeah, oh, they were. They had different names, but they've always been around. Two political parties vying for power and a voice and control of the government. The governmental authority in Israel was the Sanhedrin. And the two most prominent parties of the Sanhedrin were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, the Sanhedrin was different from our government. There's a separation that exists between our government, between religion and and government, but it wasn't so with them. So the Sanhedrin was a combination of all authority for for what we would call the church, but for them it was Judaism. So their religion, they were the authoritative voice for religion. They were the authoritative voice for all courts. So legal matters, they were the highest authority. And they were the the Congress. They passed all the laws for living. They were all mixed in there together. And everybody was vying for control and power, which is one of the reasons why they didn't like Jesus, because Jesus had a lot to say about how they were doing a bad job. Little things have changed. And one of the reasons why Jesus was always on them, because they were using the religion of their day to advance their political cause that had nothing to do with faith. Politicians do it all the time today. Some of you do it all the time today. You can be a Christian and be a Republican. You can be a Christian and be a Democrat. You can be a Christian and be a Libertarian. You can be an Independent, and you can be a devoted follower of Christ. It's important to be politically active. It's important to have causes that matter to you. It's important to have a voice. We're called to have a voice as citizens, but we're also called to have a voice as Christians. And God, I think, is tired of us trying to push our influence forward by using Christianity as a means to an end that we think is greater. Too many politicians use faith in Christianity to try to, comp- to, to, to appeal to a group of constituents when it's not really important to them at all. And it frustrates me. Some of you get angry at people that are of a different political persuasion than you, and you get mad at them, and you act as though you're a better Christian than they are because you're a part of this party instead of that party. Jesus calls that the yeast of the Pharisees. And some of you have a yeast problem. And God says to us, you got to get that right. you got to get that right. The church cannot be the voice that it is today if it gets bogged down in this world of politics. Because the message that the world needs is the gospel. Be active here. Be involved here. But this has got to be the message that you bring to the world because this is the message that the world needs if it's ever going to come together. Let me give you some practical things that you can do. This table's been wobbly the last couple of weeks and the Saturday Life team put a a piece of paper under there for me this week. I was like, that's so thoughtful, isn't it? And then I moved the table and messed up all their hard work, right? All right, so... 
I know they're out there thinking, why did he move that table? Right? I know, I know, I'm sorry. Owning that, I'm, take, I'm owning it. Let me read a couple of verses to you. Romans 13, verse 1, everyone must submit to governing authorities. For the Republican Party comes from God. Oh, that's not what it says. For all authority comes from God. You think Jesus didn't realize when he and the Holy Spirit are inspiring the gospel writers that hear Paul writing a letter to Rome that he didn't, he didn't understand that one day there might be people of political persuasion that you didn't agree with that would come to power? No, he did. That's why he put this in here. All authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. You can read it all the way down to verse 6. Titus 3, 1 through 2, remind the believers to submit. We, we do not like that word, do we not? Submit to the government and its officers. They should be obedient, always ready to do what is good. They must not slander anyone on Facebook. It must avoid quarreling in Twitter. And instead, they should be gentle and show true humility to everyone. Everybody doing that? Everybody's good there? Walking in humility with all your ideas and opinions and passions? 1 Peter 2.17, respect everyone, everyone, and love your Christian brothers and sisters. Fear God and respect the king, which in our case, that's the president. Love that Steve Ruggiero had a quote from our president in his message last week. Some of you, you said, oh, why did he put that up there? You're part of the problem. Part of the problem. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them. Intercede on their behalf. If you've got a problem with our government, how much have you prayed? Have you prayed as much as you've complained? Because maybe if you'd have prayed more, we wouldn't be in the problem that we're having today. Ask God to help them. Intercede on their behalf. Give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God, our Savior. All right, so let me, let me give you a couple of practical things. Pray for political leaders regardless of their party affiliation. Regardless of their party affiliation, right? Let's pray. I don't do enough of that. I don't. Reading through my notes just this week and felt convicted. When's the last time I prayed for my representatives? When's the last time I prayed for my governor? When's the last time I prayed for my president? If the, if the church prayed for those people like God asks us to, would we live in a different world? And the answer to that is yes. Remember a person's lack of respectability. I'm not naive. I know that not all politicians are respectable. But remember a person's lack of respectability does not give me permission to be disrespectful. Doesn't give me permission to be disrespectful. Their issue does not give me permission to step outside of the character of Christ. Minimize your exposure to intentionally provocative political commentary. If you don't think a lot of those shows care nothing about those issues, you're naive. It's about the ratings. 
and the ratings that they get are the, dictate the cost that they can charge to advertisers. And a lot of those shows care nothing about, nothing about those issues. They care about a dollar. Not every program's like that. Some stations, some programs are like that, and some aren't. But the ones that are, and if you're not sure which ones they are, I can help you figure it out. Stay away from that stuff. Read and listen to thoughtful, respectful people who differ from you politically. The majority of shows that I watch are from a different, different political persuasion because I already know what I believe. I want to understand what other people believe so I can engage them in conversation, sometimes learn from them. I, do, I have a, a strong theological position. A lot of my reading is outside of my theological stream. Podcasts that I listen to are outside my theological stream because I want to understand. I want to understand why are people passionate about these things that, that if they were as smart as me, they would see that they're wrong. Why could they believe in that stuff? And sometimes, guess, guess what? Sometimes what we realize is that we're the one that's wrong. But if you only listen to people that agree with you, you're never going to see that about yourself. Let's change that. All right, so let's give some more people opportunity to be offended if you haven't yet. I'm trying really hard tonight. So, so where do I stand on this issue of the flag? Let me tell you. I believe as a devoted follower of Christ, my ultimate allegiance, my ultimate allegiance is to Jesus. He demands my support of any social change, any societal change, that moves our culture forward towards harmony as long as morality is not at risk. Let me read that again. He demands my support of any societal change that moves our culture forward towards harmony as long as morality is not at risk. See, one of the reasons why this is such a controversy even in churches is because if people are asking the wrong questions. What does the flag mean? What does it not mean? Is that an important part of the dialogue? It is. But at the end of the day, the question we should be asking ourselves is, what's the road to greater harmony in our world? Let's take that road. And in Romans 14, Paul uses this concept of called forgoing liberties. Because at the end of the day, it might not have anything to do with about what you believe about this flag and about what that flag is. It could be at the end of the day that you're supposed to forgo something that's important to you because it's what's in the best interest of somebody else. That looks a lot like the character of Christ, doesn't it? And it's hard for us and it's hard for me. So this is where I shake out. I'm not speaking for the church on these kind of details right now. I was for that. I'm going to shift gears for a minute. I'm just going to tell you where I stand. Fred, I believe that no Confederate flag should fly at the expense of tax dollars ever in any form of government, local, state, ever, not ever, state schools, nothing, ever. But do I believe that, that Congress should pass laws restricting that? I don't. And let me tell you why that is. Because if we begin to give government that kind of authority, the next place that they go to is telling this church what they can and cannot preach. There is a reason why our flag is so powerful, because people can burn it. And our flag is strong enough to withstand any kind, any kind of degradation like that. Does it pain me? It does. 
but that's one of the things that makes our country great. Because it steps back and it says, are we, do we need to have laws for order? We do. We do. But if we over-legislate, then we take the freedom out of society that makes the society great. And at some point, truth will win the day. Let it do its work. You see, because when it comes to private industry, private schools, businesses, something called social pressure and economic pressure, they will kick in. They will kick in. And we've got to let those things do its work. And guess what? It's doing its work. We have a tendency to rush too quickly into legislation, and then little by little by little by little by little, we keep giving up freedoms where if we had just moved as a citizenry like we were supposed to, for goodness sakes, if the church would have the voice that it's supposed to have, some of these things would have already changed by now. You tracking with me? So when it comes to the federal stuff, come on, that should not be there. And it disgusts me that it is. But for private industry and private organization, let's let social pressure and economic pressure do its work. And it will do its work. And let's let the church be the voice of change that it's supposed to be. You might say, well, if we do that, if we let that happen with the flag, what's next? I'm going to answer the question, I don't know what's next. I don't know what's next. But if what's next moves us closer to harmony without violating, without violating morality, then I say, let's go down that road. Because when we get to heaven, God is not going to ask me about a flag. And he's not going to ask you about one either. He's going to ask you whether or not the character of Christ was in you the way that it was supposed to be. How much did you look like my son? We're all going to get there if we've made a vow of devotion to Jesus. Heaven's promise to us. The conversation he has with us, that's going to vary from person to person. And I don't know about you. I'm going to have regrets, but I want to have less instead of more. The Supreme Court decision on Friday, that's a different story because morality is at stake. Understand, understand the difference between these two issues. Don't put them together. A godless secular society is going to try to put these two things together. They are not the same. As a church, we've got to respectfully, the Bible talks about speaking the truth with love. We've got to speak the truth, but with love. We've got to say, no, 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 these aren't the same. These are, these are different, different issues. Supreme Court, Court decision Friday, forcing all states to legalize Gay marriage, it's a completely different arena. If we embrace this decision, would it lead to greater social harmony? Yes, but harmony at the expense of morality is compromising righteousness, and we can never go there. We cannot. Marriage is between one man and one woman for life. Scripture cannot be more clear about this. If you've got questions about LGBTQI issues, if you don't even know what those letters stand for, I did a five-part series on a blog. You need to read it. I reposted a link on it on Facebook just this week. You can go to our church website, get to a link on our blog. If you don't know about that stuff and you've got kids, get busy because you've got to be shaping your kid's heart because I'm telling you, the world's certainly trying to shape it. Are we supposed to have a loving voice? Yes. Are we supposed to have a gracious voice? Yes. But being loving and gracious does not mean that we're supposed to step into a place of moral compromise. 
There is a way that we can say that something is wrong without being mean-spirited. Blinded by Might talks about that in this book. I'm just going to tell you, one of the reasons why the Supreme Court did what it did on Friday is because the church has failed miserably over doing what it's supposed to have been doing over the last 50 years. We fail. We've not been the voice that we were supposed to be with the spirit that we were supposed to be, with the heart that we were supposed to have. We may or may not be able to undone what's been undone, but we know that there are going to be more things in our future and in our children's future that we've not even fathomed that could change. Can we not raise up a generation that's going to be ready to step into that fray? Can we not raise up a generation that's going to be prepared? Maybe ways that we weren't prepared. Can we prepare the next generation better? I'm just, this is what part of what Praxis 9 is about. We're saying as a church, we're going to get serious about raising up the next generation of Christian leaders. So that when there needs to be a voice that's speaking the truth with the right heart and the character of Christ and has the ability to discern between when morality is at risk and when it's not. That can discern when it's something that should move forward for going liberties for the sake of racial healing. But over here, we should say if we need to stand in a place of divide, we will because we will not compromise on the truth of God's word. And at the end of the day, Whoever's in the White House, may it be that we would always be on our knees. Can we not let the voice of prayer rise up in our heart for this great nation that we live in together? Stand with me. Holy Spirit, you knew when we were planning this series that these things were going to be in front of us. May it be as a church that we would keep following after your leading and your prompting and your direction. We want to be able to step into moments just like this. Holy Spirit, we want you to move in our lives in the way that you moved into the life of Christ. We know it's never going to be exactly like that because he was divine and we're human. But we know that you want to move in our lives and that you're capable of moving in our lives in ways that you don't now because our humanity gets in the way. So, Father, we want to be the Jesus that we're supposed to be in our Matthew 15 moments through the Holy Spirit that you have given to us through the work of Christ on the cross. And collectively, we want to be the church, the Matthew 15 church. We want the people to find Jesus and not the disciples when they show up. And may it be, O oh God, that, that, that when it comes to this realm of religion and politics, that we're going to be the Jesus in Matthew 16, that we're going to be the transcendent voice that rises above. Father, we know that there is a harmony that is possible. It's within the realm of possibility. And we don't have any control of what any other church is going to do. But what this church is going to do, it's up to us. And if we want to see change, may it be that we would be changed. In Jesus' precious and holy and powerful and sacred and righteous name above all names, we pray. And everybody said together, amen. We'll see you next week.